We are in a series of messages that we're calling The Upper Room. And The Upper Room is this portion of Scripture, John 13 through 17, where Jesus, his public ministry has come to an end and he's now turned his face toward his disciples. It is Passion Week, it is the Passover meal. They are in this rented out upper room and Jesus is sharing some of his most intimate thoughts to his disciples. He's downloading all the most important things that he could possibly download to them in this room. And here we are sitting in this room with these disciples in this text this morning. Now last week we said that the disciples were troubled. That they weren't too excited about some of the things that Jesus had to share. And it's because they had seen one of the disciples betray Jesus. They sold him out. He leaves. Then we see Jesus said that Peter is going to deny Jesus. And then here's this other instance where Jesus says, oh by the way, I'm going to leave you guys. So they're kind of in panic mode. So John 14 through 16, Jesus is calming their hearts. He's reminding them of what has to happen and the work that will take place and his presence with them. And so today we're looking at John 14, verses 15 through 31. A lot of times when you think about this portion of text, we think about the Holy Spirit, about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the significance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But it's interesting how much this passage is about the magnification of the work of Christ. And that's where we're going to sit this morning. I recently read uh, an article in Forbes magazine. It was from 10 years ago or so. And it was one of those polls. And the question was this, what would you like to be known for? As you can imagine, they got lots and lots of different kinds of responses and answers. But I was surprised at the response uh, that was most common from people. It wasn't that they would be good looking, it wasn't that they would be intelligent, wealthy, that they would have a nice family, it wasn't that they'd be successful, but it was rather a reputation for being authentic, to be real. And this means different things to different people, but it does transcend materialism, like we tend to think that people would look for. Being authentic means being the same on the inside as you are on the outside. A person of integrity, and I think this is the longing and aim of every single person on the face of the planet. The problem is that we're lured into believing that if people really knew who we were, there's no way that they would love us. And so we begin to live this facade of not being the same on the outside as we are on the inside. And the the deeper issue of this is that we carry this into our walk with Christ. But the beautiful news is, is that his choosing of you to be his child has nothing to do about what your behavior looked like. It was because he loved you. He, he saw you and he chose you out of his great love that he has for us. I can remember that I was interviewing for this job where, where I had to learn all of these things to go to the interview. You know, you're kind of checking out the company. You're, you're looking at all these things and you're kind of brushing up on everything and learning some new things. And I can remember thinking, man, if they only knew who I was, there's no way they would hire me. There's no way they would hire me. If they find me out, I'm done. And I think we carry this into our walk with Jesus. If Jesus really knows who we are, then there's no way that he'll rescue us from the death we've gotten ourselves into. But he is not this way. Authenticity involves seeing God for who he is, seeing ourselves for who we are, and then trusting Jesus to make up that difference. Because there is a vast chasm between who God is and who we are. And Jesus meets us right where we're at and carries us to the Father. This is the work of redemption that Jesus has come to do for us. So the big idea of where we're going today in John 14 is this. The Holy Spirit is the source of our strength to follow Jesus. So if you would stand as we read John chapter 14. 
14 together. Starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says here. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you, you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Father, we are grateful for this, this instance that Jesus has and this promise where we get, we get an inside peek of your work with us right now via the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit has come to do in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would give us, a, a, just like in the book of Acts, a fresh pouring out of the Holy Spirit in our hearts today. That, that would give us a greater amount of faith in the work that you have done for us through Jesus and a greater confidence to walk in this world as Jesus has walked. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing we got to talk about is the law. Jesus talks way more about the law than I ever thought that he did. I was at a staff meeting this week. We were talking about this. Phil, Phil said that he had read through the Gospels last year, and he's like, man, Jesus talks way more about the law than I ever realized. Anytime that Jesus talks about the law, I'm tempted to just kind of say, oh, yeah, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. We're good to go. But Jesus says not one not two, but three times in these 16 verses, or 17 verses, whatever we have, that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. We've got to deal with this. We've got to look at this today. So the big question that we're asking in this first point about the law and love is this. Why is obedience essential to following Christ? I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer to this, and then we're going to unpack it. Because obedience is the fruit of redemption. It's not what we do for redemption. We don't obey so that God will love us. We obey from God loving us. It is the fruit of redemption. So last week we were talking about this idea of Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And we said, okay, so what would the disciples in the upper room have thought about the way? What would have been their default position as Jesus 
talked about the way, and their default position would have been one of these positions where when they heard the way, they would have thought about the law. They would have thought about how, how God has shown us His character and what is right. And, and that would be the way to following God. That would have been what they thought about. And, and it's interesting that Jesus never talks about the law apart from love. His love for us, our love for the world. Love and the law are wrapped together. They are two sides of the same coin. Have you ever noticed how in the Ten Commandments, the first four are directed at our love toward God, our, our ability to love God, what a loving relationship with God looks like. And the last six are directed toward our love for our neighbor, to others, our love for others. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 22 that the sum of the law, this lawyer comes and asks him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He's trying to trap Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Basically says the sum of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this is what it all boils down to. This is what it means to follow me. So Jesus wants us to know what is required to follow God. And why does he want us to, to be reminded of what the law is? Because this points us to Jesus. This points us to what it will take for us to follow Jesus and what is required to follow Jesus. And, and today, many of us are filled with, with despair. We are filled with, with circumstances in our life that seem out of our hand, and we are tempted to be overwhelmed by these things that are going on in our lives. We're, we're in good company with the disciples. I think they are tempted to be filled with despair when Jesus meets them, and he reminds them of this truth. He tells them this truth in John 14. And what we've got to be reminded is that God is with us. God is with us. The three instances where Jesus talks about this idea of if you love me, you'll keep my commands, or John 14, 15, and in John 14, 21, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then again in John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to make our home with him. Megan and I went on our first date to Barnes & Noble. Classy, right? Said, you know, the little coffee shop in Barnes and Noble. It was, it was great. And, and we were sitting there, I think it was like a Monday or Tuesday night in Las Vegas where we'd met. I can remember us sitting there having this conversation. She'd gotten some kind of frappa mocha choca thing. And I had probably gotten a Mountain Dew or something because I didn't drink coffee at that point. But we were sitting there having this conversation. I don't remember what the conversation was about, but I remember her response to, to me in the conversation. She was like, Are you even listening to me? I mean, that was her response. And, and see, I was, I was kind of listening to her, but I was kind of like looking out in outer space. And, and it was one of those moments that, that how I appear to be listening, I realized was very important. Like my response in the conversation actually means something. And I think that what Jesus is declaring here is that there is a response to this relationship that we have with God. Just like Megan wanted a response from our relationship and our, 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 our encounter there at Barnes & Noble at the little Starbucks, that she wanted a response from me and she was not getting it. Well, when the law comes to live inside of you, when, when the word comes to live inside of you, Jesus himself comes to live inside of you, there is a response. And he's saying that that response, and it's not a condition, it's a fact. The response is that you live a life that looks like obedience. I mean, it is obedience. That's the response. Now, we get hung up on this, and, and we want to say that obedience isn't important, but Jesus talks about this a lot. And I think we get hung up on the fact that, that we want to obey God for him to love us, because that's the way our world works. It's quid pro quo. If you do this, I do this. 
But that's not how God has worked with us. He's given us grace when we did not deserve it. And now we obey him out of love. Without the law, church, we cannot know what love is. Without the law, we cannot know what love is because we don't know what it takes to be in relationship with God through Jesus without the law. God sent Jesus to make a way, to pave the path, to, to perfectly obey in our place so that we could be in a right relationship with God. And now we live outside of that. Matthew 5.17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I'm, just, I'm not getting rid of obedience. I'm not getting rid of this pursuit, this perfection that God requires. I'm not getting rid of this, but I came to fulfill it. And then on and on in Scripture, we'd see that he's fulfilled it on our behalf. And then when we trust in Jesus, that righteousness that Jesus has, because he's lived a perfect life, it's given to us. It's given to us. But the, the culture around us screams that it's not the law that matters, it's only love that matters. If we just love one another, then everything is good to go. Joseph Fletcher, this, this professor from the 60s, originated this idea called situational ethics. And situational ethics says this, only love is a constant, everything else is a variable. Only love is a constant, everything else is a variable. Now it sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds great, only love is a constant, everything else is a variable. The problem with that is that love is limited to what our emotions will prohibit. We're God in that sense. We're, we're determining what is true. And if our emotions and our circumstances will allow us to perceive something as love, then we'll say it's love. But if not, we kind of get rid of everything else. But the problem is we're not sovereign. We're not omniscient. We're not, we're not all-powerful. We're not any of those things. When we live this way, it's called hedonism, which is a pursuit of pleasure at all costs. When we live this way, we say, if it feels good, then we'll do it. Deny yourself nothing. Trust your appetite, and it will lead you to happiness. And the problem with this is, is that some of the ways that God has shown me that he's loved me through his word have been some of the most painful things in my life. And I would have never chosen them. Would have never chosen those things to, to feel and know the love of God. But he has sovereignly put them in my life. Jesus says that's how the Holy Spirit works himself out in our life. Is that our lives are obedient. If we love him, we obey him. It's not a condition, it's a fact. That's just what our lives look like. Without the law, we cannot know what love is. So immediately after Jesus makes this declaration, I mean, that'd be a pretty terrible sermon if I just dropped that on you, right? But we can't, we can't preach this sermon without starting there. Because we've got to understand the magnitude of the gap between us and God. We have to understand that or the work of Christ is nothing to us. Immediately after Jesus makes this declaration in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, what does he follow it up with? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Why do you think he, he immediately reminds them of this helper, this advocate, this comforter? Because he knows that they can't follow God on their own. He knows that they can't live up to the God. They cannot be obedient on their own. They can't do this. Sorrow would have set down. They would have been downcast because of this. So he reminds them that my presence is going to be with you. That I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And it's because of his advocacy on your behalf that you'll be right with God forever. The second thing we're talking about today is that Jesus is our first advocate. It's interesting in John 14, in, in verse 16, he says, I'll give you another helper. 
That word another is pretty interesting, right? It's like, well, if there's another helper, that means there must be two helpers. There must be two advocates. There must be two comforters in this situation. Now, a lot of times we just think about the Holy Spirit. But I think what the Scriptures are teaching us today is that Jesus is the first advocate. The Holy Spirit is the second advocate. They are both advocating on our behalf. So the big question that we're answering with this is, how do we become obedient? If God has given us this task of, of being holy as He is holy, of, of obeying the commands of Jesus, and, and, and that's the way to God, then how do we become obedient? How do we live this life? Do we try to climb up the ladder to get to God? Does that work? No, absolutely not. There's this word for the Holy Spirit called paraclete in the Greek. And it's interesting because in the English in your Bible, if you look in your Bible, depending on what version you're using, you're, you'll see like one of four different words for this word paraclete, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. You'll see comforter, you'll see helper, you'll see advocate, you'll see there's probably more words. And the reason is, is that we don't have one word in the English to describe actually what the Holy Spirit is. The, our, our language cannot grasp the magnitude of who the Holy Spirit is today I want to use the word advocate to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, we could, we, I could preach another sermon on comforter, counselor. But today we're going to use the word advocate. In John 14, 26, we see what the role of the Holy Spirit is. And I, I want to talk about this first as we're talking about Jesus as our advocate. So you're kind of getting the big picture of where we're going. John 14, 26 says this. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, or the Advocate, whom the Father will send in my name, what, what will his role be? What will his responsibility be? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Like this light right here. This light is supposed to show the fact that I'm sweating right now, right? It's, 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 it's a beam on me right now. It's, it makes it hard to see you guys. There's a focus. There's a floodlight on me right now. The Holy Spirit is a floodlight on the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He's bringing to remembrance all the things that Jesus says and does for our benefit so we can, we can glean back on the work of Jesus for our present redemption today. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I hesitate to tell you this story because I know you guys are going to laugh. So I was playing baseball with my son on Saturday. I'm beginning to think that I'm coaching my son and daughter's baseball for my good and not their good. Because I'm, I, I'm coaching baseball, Cadence 3, we played him up uh, to a four to six-year-old league. And he, sometimes he's excited about baseball, but you know it's bad when he says, hey, Dad, when's the game going to be over and we're in the first inning? <laughs> you know it's bad. So he's up to bat like pretty early on a couple weeks ago. I think he's up to bat second. He gets up to the plate and he's got his bat and he's kind of, all of a sudden I see him go, I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. So I'm like trying to give him a pep talk from the, from the mound. Everybody in the stands can hear me. The other coaches are kind of chuckling behind me. And all of a sudden he looks up into center field, and I think he's looking at me, but he sees some diggers out behind center field. You know, and they're like digging dirt. And he's like, oh, Dad, look, that's awesome. Look at those diggers. They're digging out there. And I'm like, son, baseball right here. Focus, son, focus. So he's up to the plate. Uh, he's three. I'm really surprised. I throw the ball. He hits it. He hits the ball, and he just stands there. And he does this. And so in a moment of panic, I run to home plate, and I begin to pick him up and drag him to first base. So there are, there are two lines in the sand of the dirt of his feet dragging to first base. I come over, and I stand him on first base. 
and we beat the throw there. And it was, and then, and then sure enough, right after this, the, 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 we have a parent helper at like every base because you need, you need more than, you need every parent in the field, but we have a parent helper at first base and she took my cues so the next kid hits the ball, she's dragging into the second base. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we have set a precedent here that is not healthy. So, so anyways, we successfully ran him around all the bases and scored a run and he gets up to bat the next time and I'm already thinking, oh my goodness, like what, what's going to happen this time? This has been comical thus far. And so I, I come up to him before he hits, and I say, Caden, you're doing great, man. This is a great game. I uh, hope you're having fun. He's like, yeah, it's fun. I love those diggers out there, though. And, uh, and he's, he's standing there, and I said, son, I said, how about you and I, we're going to race to first base this time. What do you think? We're going to race to first base. So he said, okay, Dad, I'm, I'm ready for that. And so I throw him the ball, and I, he hits it, and I come up beside him, and I kind of come alongside of him. And we begin to run to first base together. And he's kind of looking over at me, and he's running, and I'm running. And, and, and he runs all the way around the bases like that. And I'm, I'm reminded of what the word paraclete means. It means to come alongside of. See, the role of the Holy Spirit is to come alongside of and, and, and to help us and to be our advocate and to help us follow Jesus. So, so the Holy Spirit doesn't come behind us and push us. It doesn't come in front of us and drag us to first base. He's a comforter. He's an advocate. He helps us follow Jesus. The spotlight is on Jesus. And he helps us follow Jesus. He comes around us. He comforts us. How is Jesus our advocate then? What has Jesus done to be our advocate? I think the first thing that we've got to look at is, is kind of what, is, what does an advocate do? An advocate represents someone. It represents someone that cannot represent themselves. So the first thing we've got to realize about an advocate, there are kind of three aspects to Jesus' advocacy for us. The first one is this, and we talked about it in the first point. We're guilty and deserve punishment. So we're helpless. So we, we, we have to see that we need an advocate. We need someone to stand in our place because we cannot represent ourselves before a holy God. We cannot stand against God. We cannot show him the things that we've done. Hey, look how good I've done. I've kept the law. Look at this, God. We will not stand before God that way because we are unholy apart from Jesus being with us. So we have to see that we deserve punishment. So the law shows us how bad we are and how good Jesus is. He shows us that gap, the goodness of God, the sinfulness of man. And it reminds us that we have guilt, right? I mean, it reminds us that, that we're guilty of sin. And so we have to start there. If we don't start there, we'll miss out on what the advocacy of Jesus Christ for us actually is. Then we look to Jesus to represent us. So we're, we're on the hunt for a representative, right? We, we're guilty. We have sin in our lives. We need an advocate on our behalf. So we confess our sin to God. And we say, Jesus, I need another representative. I cannot represent myself. I can't represent myself to a holy God because I am so sinful. And so Jesus kind of becomes our defense attorney before the Father, our advocate. And if you know anything about being a defense attorney or anything like that, basically for the defendant, the person that the defense attorney is representing, the defense attorney becomes everything to that person. They, they place their complete trust in the person that's defending them. And so Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and he represents our case because of his work on the cross. He represents us to the Father. And he, he sits before the Father and he says, Ryan, he says, Vicky, he says, Art, I represent them. 
I am represented. I am their advocate, Father. And then the third aspect of this is that Jesus has an absolutely perfect case that will not fail. Before an attorney will take a case, they often have a meeting, right? And they say, is this case worth taking? Can I win this case? No one wants to take a case that they know they're going to lose. So can I win this case? And the allegation is that, that, that we have lived lives that don't live up to the standard that God has set before us. We have sinned. And that God is the righteous and just judge must punish sin. He can't just let it go because He's just. He can't just let it go. And so in our minds... A lot of times I think we think like this. Maybe, maybe God will just give us a plea bargain. Maybe if we just say, hey, we're guilty, he'll lessen the punishment and life won't be as bad. And maybe we could sneak into heaven. Maybe we could just sneak into heaven. Maybe Jesus can kind of work out a deal for us where, where we'll say, man, if I could just do, I, I, could, I could keep most of the law most of the time. And then, and then maybe I'll give a lot of my time and a lot of my money to the church. And then maybe God will let me into heaven. That's not the way it works. We, we don't get a plea bargain when Jesus represents us because he has a perfect case. You know what he says to the Father? Father, show them your justice. Throw it at them. Show them your justice. No, we're not going for a plea bargain here. And the Father, he looks at exhibit A on the left. He sees the cross. He sees the perfect life of Jesus lived on their behalf. And exhibit B on the right, he, he sees the cross, the shed blood for the sins of of those that would believe in him. And he says, this, this case is closed, not guilty. This case is closed. And that is exactly what it means for Jesus to be our advocate. We don't get a plea bargain. It's not that we're just sneaking in. But God looks at us because Jesus is our advocate. And he says, this is my son. This is my daughter and I'm well pleased. They are perfect, righteous, and right standing with me. And this is what it means to have Jesus as your advocate. That we are in a right relationship with God because of his work on our behalf. But our response to this is often that we want to choose to be our own advocate. That we think we want to take things into our own hands. And, and Jesus says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. We're not orphans. We, we are not without an advocate. Jesus has become our advocate, and our case is already won. There's nothing to be proved. And so this life of obedience that Jesus is, is commanding, he's saying, it, I know that it will come to pass because my Holy Spirit lives within your children, Father. And he has one job, to please the Father. And so he will work himself out. He will work out your will in the lives of your children, Father. And that's what will happen. And so we see when Jesus is our advocate that we are right with the Father, there is nothing to prove. And that's good. That's good and well for these disciples, except for the fact that Jesus says, hey, I'm going to leave. But then he says, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you another advocate. So here's the second advocate that we're looking at, the Holy Spirit. The big question that we're asking with this is, how do we stay obedient? How do we finish the race? Jesus is gone. He's not right in front of me anymore, as the disciples would say. How do we finish the race? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to send another advocate for you. And he's going to put the spotlight on me. He's going to remind you of all things. And he's going to come alongside you. And you will endure to the end. The covenant of grace unfolds in the Scriptures 
where it starts with this covenant. It's the covenant of works. It's a conditional covenant. It says, if you obey me, you will surely live. If you disobey me, you will die. So there's this covenant that's kind of set in place. Disobedience occurs. So immediately, God institutes another covenant, a covenant of grace, where he, he clothes them with animals, he sheds blood on their behalf, and he makes this promise that there's going to be this Messiah that's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent's going to strike his heel. Even though, he's, even though Jesus is going to go to the cross, the cross is going to crush the serpent. He's going to crush the work of the enemy. And so this covenant of grace, it begins to build throughout the Old Testament. It, it builds and builds and builds as we see God coming more near and more near and more near with each covenant, with the covenant with Noah, with the covenant with Abraham, with the covenant with David, with the covenant with the Israelites. We see God coming nearer and nearer and nearer to us. We don't see Him backing away. We see Him drawing closer to these sinners. He's a God full of grace. And then in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, we see this promise of what the covenant will become, the new covenant. I want to read this to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Do not miss this. I will put my law. Remember the law? We talked about the law, the, the, the righteous standard that God requires because he's just. I will, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the work that God came to do, to put his law on our hearts, to make us more into the son, the image of his son. And so, this is the work that he's come to do for us. The law would not be a ladder to climb like we've talked about, but the law, God's ways would become our ways because of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how this is possible. God has drawn most near in, the, in this, this new covenant where God comes to live and dwell inside of his people. And this is what John 14 tells us all about. That Jesus is in the Father, and that we're in Jesus, and we're all one together. The Holy Spirit. So, so we're all wrapped up together in this relationship through the work of Christ. And it's because God has taken the initiative to set his love on us and to put it within us via the Holy Spirit. Now get this. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. It kind of all comes together here. He says this. Prophet Ezekiel says this. I, I, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is what God is saying. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. He's coming even closer. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my ways according to my rule. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So this is how Jesus can say, if you love me, you will, you'll, you'll follow me, you'll keep my commands. Because Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit's coming to make this a reality in our lives. And 
there are times we resist the work of the Holy Spirit, right? We disobey. But he's saying the prophet Ezekiel, what God has said to him here is that the work of the gospel is to put a new heart within us. The old heart was not good. We couldn't make it obedient. And this new heart is accompanied with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what pushes us on to obedience. It is the result from knowing God. My friend Travis was telling me a story this week about he and his son. And his son was learning how to play the drums. Everybody's a drummer, right? I mean, we're all kind of like we're all drumming in our car and stuff. So his son's learning how to play the drums, and he's learning how to play a real kid, and he's having a hard time with the drum roll because, you know, there's, 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 some, there's some skill involved in doing a drum roll. I mean, you have to kind of hold... It's like a fulcrum or whatever. If you're a drummer, you know that. You've got to kind of bounce it and, and let, it do, let the drums do the work, let the sticks do the work there. And he's having a hard time with this. And so his son, he's standing out watching his son, and he's trying to instruct him, saying, hey, now if you just do the, now put, put your hand up on the stick, make the fulcrum a little higher, and, and, and kind of let him bounce and roll a little more. And he's, he's instructing him on how to do this. And then all of a sudden, he says, I just came up behind my son. And, and, and my son's holding the sticks, and he's playing the drums. And he said, I just put my hands on his hands on the sticks. And we began to play the drums together. And all of a sudden, he started to get how to play the drums. He started to, he started to know what a role was like because he could feel it in my hands. He could see what he needed to do. Friends, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. He's showing us the way to the Father. He's with us. It's not a competition to say, can you follow God? Let me see which, prove yourself. Jesus is alive inside of us through the Holy Spirit, teaching us, teaching us his way. And sometimes it's very unpleasant to follow Jesus. Oftentimes it is. But it is always good because God is always good. The goodness of God overwhelms our hearts. The Holy Spirit for us, guys, is, it's like he's always whispering in our ear. You can believe the gospel. It's true. I know it seems too good to be true, but you can believe it. This is my word. It's true. You can believe it. So what's this mean this week as you go out Go out and you go about your way and your family at your workplace with your neighbors. What does it mean? What, how does this affect you this week? Maybe with your family you need to be reminded that though your marriage is rocky at times and your kids are out of hand, that your situation has not surprised God. That His grace is sufficient for you. That He's, that he's given you enough grace for today. To follow him today, he's given you enough grace. That's what his grace is sufficient, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. His, his power is made perfect in weakness. His grace is sufficient for you to follow Jesus today. There's enough grace in Jesus. There's more than enough grace. So at your job on Tuesday, what's this mean? Maybe you need to be reminded that this is God's work through you. That, that God is building his kingdom even through your 9 to 5 job that you're working. That he's with you, working through you and bringing redemption to this little domain of his, of his kingdom that you're plucking away at day in, day out. Work is not a bad thing. Work is harder because of the curse, but work was around before the curse. God wants to bring redemption and renewal through the way that you work this week. And God is with you. It's not like he left you. He's with you in your work. What's this look like in your neighborliness on Wednesday when you're walking through your hood or you're You've met one of your neighbors out at the mailbox before they shut the garage door real quick, right? What is this? You guys are laughing because you know it's true. So what does this mean? Maybe just like the Israelites, the, the Holy Spirit, maybe the Holy Spirit will prompt you to be inclusive 
Because, you know, the interesting thing, even though that the Israelites were specifically called people, when you look in the Scriptures, God has always welcomed the alien and the sojourner. Maybe you just need a friendly wave or a smile. Maybe you need to remind people that God is with us. Maybe God will use you in that way. Whatever it may be, I want to encourage you that God is bringing redemption in whatever life brings you this week. And just like when I was running to first base with Caden, running alongside of him, just like my friend Travis was telling me about playing the drums with his son, the Holy Spirit is with you, which means that the very presence of Jesus lives inside of you. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. This is really good news. And this comforted those disciples. You better believe it's going to comfort us in this cafeteria this morning. So let's pray together. Jesus, you are so good. You are so kind to us. I'm thankful that when we look at your holiness, at God's standard, that we don't have to we don't have to shudder in fear, but we can say that his holiness is my holiness because I'm in Jesus. And we didn't have to settle for this plea bargain of barely squeaking by. But the Father threw his justice at us, and we have withstood. We are sustained. And we are living in right relationship with the Father because of your work. So remind us of that this week. And teach us what it looks like to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.